The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Therapeutic Approach to Growth with your host, Brooke Wagner. Each week, this program will focus on interests and expertise pertaining to special needs individuals and their families. We'll help you open up and connect while sharing powerful information. Now, here is Brooke Wagner. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. I am host Brooke Wagner. Our goal of the show is to offer support, resources, and most importantly, hope to the special needs community. Today, I have with me licensed occupational therapist, Chris Vincino, and we will be taking a close look at occupational therapy and how it is used to support individuals with developmental delays. So welcome, Chris. Thank you. I'm happy to be here this morning. Thank you. I'm so excited to uh, talk about this uh, really important topic. And um, before we begin, begin talking about occupational therapy, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background and experience. Okay. Well, let's see. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> started out really um, when I went to business school a long time ago, and I found myself being really bored. Mm-hmm. And I... Um, <clears throat> eventually realized that it was not for me that something was lacking and that I, so I did a lot of soul searching and um, thought about what I wanted to do when I grew up and I um, really realized that I wanted to help people and I wanted to do something that was related to um, <clears throat> health and uh, psychology and, and human behavior and so I did some research and um, one thing led to another. I had a um, a cousin, a distant cousin, who was an occupational therapist, and and uh, so I um, uh, went to observe her at work. And at the end of the day, I was sold on it, and I was mm-hmm. um, I was encouraged to follow that profession by different family members, and um, and it was um, it was just the beginning of a long journey. It was um, I. Went to school in uh, Paris, France, and graduated in um, '85. So that was over 30 years ago. This year marks the 30th year of my oh, wow. career. Thank you, <laughs> and it's been a great journey. And um, so um, after after graduating from school in Paris, France, um, I worked in France for um, a short time, and then um, after that, in '86, I moved to San Diego. And that was 30 years ago. Wow. Wow. It's been a, a long and beautiful journey yes, that you've been on. Been. And, um, it's wonderful. And it, you know what? One of the things I was thinking about is we should probably take some time to define occupational therapy um, for those that uh, aren't familiar with it. Yes. Um, occupational therapy somehow is, is uh, I think, can be a um, greatly misunderstood term, um, often 
people will think that it only applies to adults um, looking for a job. Um, <clears throat> really, the the definition of occupational therapy by the American Occupational Therapy Association is that the therapeutic use of work, self-care, and play activities uh, is used to increase development and prevent disability. And it may include adaptation of task or environment to achieve maximum independence and to enhance the quality of life. So that's a lot. That's a lot mm-hmm. of information to process, but mm-hmm. it's, it's basically looking at what we do um, in our lives, how we spend our time in meaningful ways. So obviously it would be different for um, different age groups. Uh, if we're looking at children, children's main occupations would be to, uh, to play mm-hmm. to, uh, and to learn. Um, to learn um, to learn how to play and to learn um, about language, to learn about writing and science and all sorts of things, and 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 also um, performing things like um, self care tasks where children learn about how to um, you know take care of their body and getting dressed and whatnot. And, and um, for adults, it would be performing um, an occupation, whether it is paid occupation or not. It could be someone who stays at home and managing, manages the household. or So really occupation can be different from a lot of the, you know, people. And um, so whenever, whenever something, a disorder or a condition or an accident interferes with our ability to perform those occupations, those daily occupations, then occupational therapists can come in and try to... Um, Figure out what what is the problem, what is the obstacle. Um, you know, a quick example would be um, for a school age child who has um, maybe difficulty with handwriting. You know, the first symptom may be that they are becoming frustrated in school, and you know, second layer would be to realize that it's coming because of. Um, handwriting difficulties and then and then after that an occupational therapist would have to figure out what is what is the the obstacle um that that's preventing the child to write easily and effortlessly and clearly and and go from there and set up treatment goals and treatment activities and and to help the child become more competent in that area okay great well, I know that uh, when people talk about occupational therapy, they often mention sensory processing and sensory motor and sensory integration. Can you share with our listeners what those terms mean? Sure, I'd love to. Um, a lot of those terms have to do with um, have to do with the brain and how the brain works and how the brain allows us to function in life and to process information. So. Really, with all those terms, sensory processing, sensory motor, sensory integration, there's, um, well, we hear the word sensory. Um, and so really, whenever we're, we're uh, awake, um, we're subjected to a variety of inputs, a variety of sensations. It could be sounds, it could be visuals, it could be smells, it could be movements. And as we're subjected to that input, we have to take it in, we have to first notice that it's there, we have to take it in, and we have to determine if it's relevant or not for the, for the moment, for the task at hand. And then if it's relevant, we pay attention to it. If it's not relevant, we try to ignore it so that we don't get distracted. Um, and 
And if it is relevant, then we have to decide how to respond to that input. So, you know, very simple uh, sensory motor response would be that we hear our name being called and we're not sure who's calling it. Maybe we're um, at the mall and we hear our name and so we may stop and we may turn our head in the direction of the sound. So that would be a, a very basic sensory motor response where we're based on a sound, we're adjusting our body and we're, we're initiating a response in, in, you know, in the direction of the, of the sound. Um, you know, it could be another sensory motor response would be how we're, um, maybe we're um, going back to handwriting where, um, you know, we're, we're looking at the lines on the page and based on the position of uh, where everything is on the page, we're writing and we're forming neat letters. So there's a visual component, there's a motor component. Um, and so that's addressing sensory and motor. When it comes to, to sensor integration, that's, that's really where um, sensor integration is really a specialty of um, subspecialty of occupational therapy. Uh, many occupational therapists um, may use different frames of reference. Uh, sensor integration is a very important one in, in many, um, you know, many aspects of occupational therapy. It really looks at how parts of the brain have to come together to, for us to be able to make sense of the situation. Mm-hmm. So it could be that, you know, when someone, if you, Brooke, if you're looking for something in your purse, mm-hmm. um, you may look for a pen and you know that you have a pen in your purse and you're looking for it and somehow you're going to rely maybe on vision to see if you can, you know, if you can, if you can see the, the pen in your purse, but you may also use use your hand and you may use your tactile sense, your sense of touch to notice that, oh, this feels more like, like um, you know, my keys as opposed to, oh, this, this feels like the pen. And I, uh, um, <clears throat> so that ability to use different senses to perform a task is, is what, um, you know, what gives us sensor integration. So it's really the ability to um, combine the information from different senses to um, so that we get a full meaning of what is going on, what we need to do, and and how to and how to do it. Okay, great. Okay, great. I love that tangible example. I know that we can all really relate to those experiences and and how important it is for us to really rely on multiple senses mm-hmm. uh, to participate in a task. Um, I know that we both see many clients here at TAG uh, with sensory processing breakdowns and uh, would love to have you share what that commonly looks like in our clients here. That's, that's, um, that's a tough question to address. It's a fascinating one. That it's, it's a tough one because not two people are alike. And as human beings, we share obviously many um, characteristics, but we're also all different from each other. So although we all have a brain and our nervous systems have many commonalities, but we, um, each of our nervous systems work somewhat differently. So I, I work with a lot of different um, clients. And so I'll, um, I'll try to think of just, you know, a few examples um, to give, to give a variety of, of, um, of examples. And, and, um, so I had a, I had um, a referral a couple of months ago for a little four-year-old boy 
who um, who was described as being very smart, very bright, um, and very playful, but somehow was beginning to have difficulties in school. And he um, he was losing his confidence. Uh, he was participating less and less in school discussions. Uh, he was not raising his hands. He looked more and more shy. Um, and and whenever it was time to do anything that had to do with drawing, coloring, writing, uh, he completely shut down. And he seemed just really terrified, um, you know, would hide under the tables and, and uh, would become somewhat disruptive and, and um, just could not, could not do it. Um, so his, um, his parents um, came to me and, and we understood fairly quickly, uh, even before I met the child, that um, there were, they were fine motor difficulties. That's why the, the child was having um, you know, such, such difficulty with, with all those types of tasks in school. But there was also a huge uh, confidence issue. Mm-hmm. And, and this little guy really um, seemed just unhappy. And, and although he was only four, school was a big piece of his daily life. And he spent, you know, six, seven hours in school on a daily basis. And for him to feel scared and to feel incompetent for six, seven hours in his life every day was, was really, um, was really a big deal. And it needed to be addressed quickly as it was, you know, he was starting to, um, to, uh, regress. And, and so, um, so as I met with him, my first goal was really to, um, to, uh, to build trust, and, and I knew I could not push him from the beginning um, too quickly if, the, if his parents um, that he had a wonderful relationship with could not push him to write. Mm-hmm. I certainly would not be able to push him to write the first time I met with him. So I knew I, knew I had to build trust. So I spent a lot of time, um, you know, playing with him. And what I noticed at first was definitely his lack of confidence. He, um, um, and so the way, the way he presented was, a lot of um, you know being shy and wanting wanting me to do things for him. Uh, so I quickly I saw a child who uh, who was so scared of being competent um, that he really wanted everybody else to do things for him, and that really stifled his his ability to be himself, his ability to be creative, and his ability to express himself. So that would be one example of how um, how that child looked like. Um, I, I see a lot of children who have who have confidence and behavior issues because when a child does not feel competent, um, he or she tends to show that through through their actions and, and mm-hmm. uh, by either being disruptive or by um, withdrawing and not being as engaged and not participating as much as you know the children would. Um, for some children. It's not so much about behaviors. It uh, it might be more about motor skills. So some children might just be you know more clumsy and bump into things. They may be rough with their toys, not because they want to be rough with their toys, but because somehow they can't really figure out how much pressure to use when they're pushing toys or pulling or uh, assembling toys. And and uh, so for some children, it could be that they're overreacting to things. So they're really happy, but when they're happy, they're, they get really loud and they laugh really loud and they talk really loudly. And, and others 
instead of over-responding, tend to under-respond and tend to maybe shut down, to look really shy, uh, to be quiet, to be afraid of approaching a new game or a new situation. Um, so we can have a variety of responses, um, you know, based on the, on the person's um, difficulties and the person's profile. So really the first piece is to, to assess the, the individual and to, uh, through um, parent interviews, caregiver interviews, reports, and observation and interaction, and just to see where, where the breakdowns are. No, that's great. That's great. And those are, again, some really tangible examples. And I'm sure our listeners can relate to seeing those areas uh, in their own children. Um, And, you know, I think one of the things that we're going to want to touch on is regulation. So um, you mentioned a little bit about that um, in those examples. And I'd like to come back from our next commercial break and and touch on regulation and learn more about that. So uh, with that, we're going to go to a commercial break and um, we'll be back in a few and uh, reconnect about that topic. That sounds good. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also reach Brooke Wagner via email to bwagner at tagforgrowth.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. This is Brooke Wagner, host, and I have with me today Chris Vincino, who is our occupational therapist here at TAG. And uh, TAG, uh, something just to mention, um, TAG is a private agency in San Diego uh, where we support individuals with developmental and acquired uh, disorders. And uh, Chris is um, our wonderful occupational therapist. And um, right before the break, Chris, we were uh, talking a little bit about uh, regulation. And um, I know many of our clients have challenges in this area. And I'd like to spend some time defining what that means and what that looks like. 
that's that's a great um, topic to discuss. Regulation is such a big piece of um, learning, of any kind of learning and any kind of interaction. Um, so really, regulation refers to our ability to remain alert, organized, and ready to perform the task at hand. So it's really a, a neurological process. It's a, it's a, it's something that the brain does. Um, Ideally, it's a process that takes place automatically where we don't have to think about it. Um, and so this process allows the brain to shift attention from one, um, one task to the other and allows us to stay, to stay calm and to be ready for what, what, is, what is happening, what we need to do. So, for example, if we're listening to a presentation, then we need to, Typically, we need to be quiet and our bodies need to be fairly calm and we need to basically be ready to focus, to listen, um, maybe take notes. Uh, if we're ready for a um, maybe a, a sports um, game, a sports um, meetup, then obviously we, um, it's not so much, it's probably not about being quiet, it's more about, you know, making sure our body is ready to perform and we may be louder, we may be, um, <clears throat> so our our state, uh, our physiological state, the way we move, the, our level of quietness or loudness is all going to be based on the task at hand. Um, so our ability to shift gears and to become more quiet or more uh, loud or to pick up the pace, that ability is really um, what regulation is about. Um, so unfortunately, there are many individuals for many different reasons who have regulation issues. Um, and the problem is that regulation is an essential part of learning. Uh, it's an essential part of interacting with others and being engaged and being productive. Um, when, so my, you know, my, probably before I add any other information, I would really encourage any, any um, parent or anyone facing regulation, regulation issues to educate themselves about the importance of regulation. Um, don't just take my word for it. <laughs> just, just, you know, further research, look at um, how, how um, looking, at, looking at the importance of recognizing the signs of regulation versus dysregulation. And then I would really encourage all the listeners to learn which situations and strategies tend to lead to um, dysregulation maybe for your child and um, in which other situations tend to help him or help her to regain a regulated state. Um, so we should probably talk about the, the signs of regulations. Mm -hmm. um, so when someone is regulated, they tend to be calm, they tend to be focused, they are, um, they are interested, they're motivated, they listen, um, they're able to transition from one activity to another, they don't get stuck, um, and they're, from a body standpoint, from a movement standpoint, uh, the the individual is able to perform careful movements. Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> basically, they're they're in control. Um, there's, I tend to look at, I think one one thing that um, is important for all of our clients at Tag, and that is very much part of our philosophy here, is is that when 
when someone comes to us with a variety of, of difficulties, difficulties um, performing their daily occupations, whether it is school, whether it is work, whether it was whether it is play, we we want to understand the person as a whole. We don't try to um, you know label the individual with a with a diagnosis or um, just you know come up with some quick treatment activities and and um, so we really we really try to understand the whole individual and um, from a regulation standpoint I'd like to look at different different areas that tend to promote regulation or uh, that can also contribute to this regulation. So, for example, I, I can think of at least five different categories. One would be anything that's physiological. So, for example, when someone is cold, hot, hungry, thirsty, uh, low blood sugar, those conditions may contribute to, be, um, to being dysregulated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some um, factors could be sensory. So sensory could be someone who's uh, overly sensitive to smells and who kind of concentrate on the task at hand. Uh, somebody who would be um, overly sensitive to sounds and would be really um, um, distracted by ambient noises in the classroom or in a work environment to the point where they really cannot perform their their um, um, you know, occupations and, and uh, it could be motor, it could be, uh, so for example, when the individual, uh, in the example of handwriting, um, maybe a child is having such handwriting issues that they're becoming uh, dysregulated each time they have to write. Or it could be that um, maybe they're clumsy and whenever they have to look for something in a backpack, they're struggle with fumble, they, they, um, get behind and by the time they have found something in that backpack there are five minutes behind with what the other students are doing. Um, it could be some cognitive components that are interfering with regulation. Maybe uh, the, the information is presented too quickly. Maybe the information is too complex. Uh, the person does not feel that they can grasp onto what they have to do. Uh, it could be that the information is presented too uh, slowly and the individual is bored and cannot sustain their attention because um, the information is not, is not challenging enough. Or it could be social emotional types of factors where um, maybe socially the, the individual has um, a hard time reading social cues, um, has a hard time understanding people's actions or how close to stand to someone um, so all this, there can be a lot of different factors and that's, you know, the, when I first meet, um, with a child, I, my, my goal is to really understand where the breakdowns are. And, and so I always do a thorough interview of the parents or possibly teachers or whoever else is involved in the, in the child's life and to really try to understand what's what's what contributes to the child becoming dysregulated mm-hmm. and because then that that really becomes somewhat of a roadmap for uh for everyone in the child's life to understand the child better and to understand what's going to trigger maybe um feelings of incompetence um tantrums um distractibility and um that will allow everybody to support the child better and to start coming up with interventions that work. Mm-hmm. Um, often, often therapeutic interventions don't work because they don't 
target the proper obstacle. Mm-hmm. So there's really um, a need to um, do a thorough assessment and to um, to understand all the all the breakdowns properly. Oh, that's great, Chris. And I think that's what's really important to mention that um, you're really looking beyond the surface level behaviors and um, getting to core breakdown area. And when we do that, then we really treat, see some uh, true remediation. And we see that uh, significant change in the child um, and we see that they um, are more confident and more successful and that's going to lead to them wanting to do more and to take on more and um, that's such a beautiful process to be a part of and you know one of the things that I think would be good to uh, talk about are some common things that families come to you for because I would imagine that you would probably hear information about those surface level behaviors first uh, when families are sharing their frustrations um, with their child and the breakdowns their child are experiencing and it would be great to kind of hear about what you initially hear and then how you would process uh, those breakdown areas. Okay. Yes, that's um it's it can be very tricky for families to know what to do because they you know what they will often see from um, from the outside is a child who does not seem happy a child who's tantruming a child who's uh, does not seem to be trying hard enough although often they're actually trying harder than anybody else um, it could be a child who's too shy a child who's too hyperactive, a child who doesn't seem to pay attention. And it, it can be really difficult for parents to know where to start and what's what's causing uh, all those difficulties. So, um, you know, I, I can just share some some examples, a few examples. They're, 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 they're always fascinating to me because they, they come in so many different, um, 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 you know, forms. But I had, I had this little guy who was referred to me um, a little while ago, and he was five. And, um, and I had had a couple of sessions with him. Um, he, he had a lot of tantrums, and he had a lot of uh, confidence issues, and he had a lot of uh, motor skills issues. It was a little clumsy. And, um, and after a couple of sessions, the mother came to me and, and acknowledged um, some concerns with, with potty training. Uh, she found that her son was... Uh, ready, but somehow he just refused to wipe himself when it was time to do that in the bathroom. And he, um, so it had turned into a power struggle where she felt that she just needed to push him and to encourage him, but somehow it had led to uh, such a power struggle that the child was beginning to experience constipation and it was beginning to be a, 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 a medical issue. Um, so mom knew there was a problem. She wasn't sure how to, um, what to do. She, she felt that she had to keep pushing her child, but she didn't know how to, and she could tell that it was not working. Um, so after I had worked with the child for a couple of sessions, I, um, I, found, that I, I found out that he, he loved numbers, and he loved things that were very concrete and very black and white. And, and um, so I asked the mom if she thought, her son would be um, um, well, the, the, first. First, the first thing that we did, we realized, is that there was too much pressure on that child. Uh-huh. He and the reason why there was a power struggle is that he did not feel that he could do it. And whether or not it was an accurate perception, he felt he could not do it, and he was digging his heels in, and he was he was he was not having it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I encouraged the mom to talk to her son and to say something along the lines of. 
Um, I understand this has been really stressful, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to do the wiping for, for at least for, you know for now for a while until you know we figure something out, and so I'll help you out, and you don't have to worry about it. However. Um, what I'd like you to do now, and that was based on my recommendation, was to uh, to count four sheets of toilet paper and give me those four sheets. Um, and so I met with the mom a week later after make, making that recommendation and said, well, how, how, how is it going? And she said, oh, he can't wait mm-hmm. to go to the bathroom because he's so excited about counting the sheets of toilet paper. So really what's, you know, this is a cute little story and, and – um, but really what happened is that um, by acknowledging how hard it was for him, by telling him that we would do it for him, it decreased demand a lot. It decreased, it decreased a lot of anxiety, and it decreased his sense of being incompetent and being in, in really, he was in fight-or-flight mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the point was not to determine, well, should he really be in fight-or-flight mode, or shouldn't he be mature enough to take care of this? That was irrelevant, really. What was relevant is to acknowledge his state of um, dysregulation and, and his state of feeling overwhelmed, and we needed to help him with that. So then we basically we gave him a role um, to count the sheets of toilet paper. He felt competent in that role. That allowed him to embrace the process, and then it allowed him to feel competent again in that interaction of going to the bathroom and a month later the mom reported that he was wiping himself very successfully so not not every story is as um successful as this one it's not always you know every problem is not always as quick to be to be uh, solved but it's 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 one example that i like to use because it it um it brings in a lot of different points in my work um but you know another um another example i'm thinking of was um This um, this little guy that I talked about earlier who had who was losing his confidence in class each time there was um, some drawing or coloring to do. Um, so after I had um, worked with him for for a couple of weeks and he started trusting me and he showed a lot of um, uh, comfort in being with me and a lot of motivation in playing with me, then I decided that I would start addressing some of the fine motor issues. But I knew I had to tread really carefully so that he would not uh, feel threatened and and shut down with the demand. So you know, I knew it had been tried many times by his teachers and his parents unsuccessfully. So I had to I'm not a magician, and I had to be really careful on how, how to approach the situation. So I, I pull out a whiteboard, and I say, hey, I, um, you know, I, um, I want to do something for you. I want to make a funny drawing for you. You don't have to do anything. I just would like you to watch, and I'm going to do something for you. Um, so he, from the get-go, he was very... Um, he seemed very comfortable and he didn't seem threatened because, again, I reduced the demand and I did not ask him to pull out a marker and to start drawing or writing. So I drew a big circle on the whiteboard and I said, I'm going to make a, a funny face. And I just, I just don't know which marker to, um, to use. 
So he looked at the bag of marker and he said, here, get the red one. And he gave me a red marker. So already he was engaged in the task. He was engaged in the task that he typically refused to be engaged in. Uh, it was a baby step, but it was, it was a great one. And then I said, all right, well, now I drew a circle for the face. I'm not sure if I should draw an eye or nose. And he said, here, I'll draw an eye for you. And he drew an eye. And we started having fun. He was having fun. And he was again engaged in the process and from then on um at every session he asked me if it was time to draw a picture and he became very um excited about drawing and coloring so again it was not i did not perform magic but i found a way to reduce the expectation to reduce his anxiety to make him feel competent um and, and i found a way to create motivation um and to break down the task so that he would feel brave enough to do it. And from then on, after ensuring that he was successful, um, because success is addictive, and once he was he experienced success, then he wanted to do it again. Um, oh, I love that. I love that. And I think that, you know, what you're really tapping into is that intrinsic motivation. He's starting to feel so successful that he wants more. And motivation is such a huge part of what you're working on and it um, is. it's such a powerful thing to have and to not have is also uh, you know really debilitating mm-hmm. and so it's it's really tough to see our clients come to us with those breakdowns but so inspirational to see that the change and the shift that you're seeing and sometimes in a really quick short period mm-hmm. of time mm-hmm. so we love to see that quick turnaround I know. it's always very um, exciting it is it is so um, we're going to take a quick commercial break and um, we'll be back to expand more on this topic and uh, with that um, we'll be back. Sounds great. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Biohacking for Health is working with your individual biology to gain access to and control over the systems within your body. It allows you to explore your biology and improve health and wellness. Each of us has unique genetic profiles and physiology that require individualized approaches. On Biohacking for Optimal Health, Dr. Daniel Stickler and his expert guests provide a roadmap to navigate the world of biohacking human potential. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also reach Brooke Wagner via email to bwagner at tagforgrowth.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Uh, Brooke Wagner here, host, and I have here with me Chris Vincino, who is occupational therapist. So welcome back, Chris. Thank you. 
Um, right before the break, uh, we touched uh, briefly on motivation, and uh, I think that's a really important to expand, important topic to expand on. Um, I'd like to talk about how you guide your clients through the process of being willing to challenge themselves and that motivation that they have uh, once you've been able to support them um, on challenging themselves. It's such a great topic. Um, <clears throat> Many, many individuals, and including children, with sensory processing disorders. Um, and, and by the way, many, uh, many children are not, are not always identified properly with sensory processing disorders. So they may have all sorts of conditions, or they may not have any diagnosis. They may just be um, considered as difficult children, as shy children, as loud children, as uh, clumsy children. Um, some of them may have sensory processing disorders. So uh, if that's something that you suspect, I would definitely encourage the listeners to um, research more about occupational therapy, about signs of sensory processing disorders, um, talking to an occupational therapist, talking to other parents who um, have received occupational therapy for their child as, as you know, might be a good, um, important resource. But many children with sensory processing issues tend to... Um, tend to have um, more difficulty staying motivated. Um, so they typically don't have any difficulty being motivated for things that they like, mm-hmm. but it becomes harder to do for things that are not as interesting to them. So often um, we have to look at how, how, we, how we tend to uh, respond and react to um, an activity to information. In order to learn and to get better at something, we really need to approach a situation, mm-hmm. approach information, as opposed to avoiding it. Unfortunately, many children with sensory processing difficulties tend to avoid a situation or not notice all the important components of it, and that leads to um, not being able to fully engage in the task. So it's really critical to create motivation one way or another. So we have often talked about creating a hook, uh, finding a way to present information in a more fun way or more interesting or more meaningful way. Um, You know, for the little guy in the toilet paper, somehow he needed something very concrete, very um, hands-on, and that's counting the number of sheets was what worked for him. Um, You know, we have to set up realistic expectations for the task. So it often means backing off and um, finding a way to break down a task that would be overwhelming otherwise and make it less overwhelming. Uh, We have to make sure that there is success from the get-go. Children with sensory processing issues tend to be less successful in performing their daily activities. And as they're less successful, they tend to be less motivated to perform those tasks. So it tends to snowball. So it's really important to look at the big picture and look at how successful and unsuccessful those children are so that we can support them to, um, you know, in their their, um, process. Um, We have to make sure that we really focus on the positive. I'll use I'll use an example. I have um, started working with this um, child who's about ten years old, and he has Asperger's syndrome, a form of autism, and um, he he came to me with a lot of um, behavior concerns. He um, 
a lot of um, complaints from the parents that he did not follow directions. He became disruptive very easily. He, um, when he did not like something in school, he would hide in the bathroom. And um, so the, the, the list went on of disruptive behaviors. But um, so I was talking with that <coughs> child and, and I said, you know, I, I heard that school is um, quite stressful for you at times. And he said, yes, I hate school. So instead of trying to convince him that school was good for him and that he needed to go, um, I thought, well, this is, he's telling me that he hates school. And the more, the more I tell him that he should love school, the more I'm going to go against him and the more I'm likely to fuel his resistance. And uh, so this child needs to feel validated. And, and uh, so I, I made him talk about how much he hated school. <laughs> and, and he said, yeah, there's a, there's a fence on the playground and there's a small hole under the fence and most people haven't noticed it and I've noticed it and I go and I go to recess and sometimes I'll sit next to that spot in the fence and I think about going under the fence and going through that hole to run away because I'm so unhappy with school and and I had to really think for a minute about what what kind of feedback to give him because Mm -hmm. he was telling me how he was thinking of escaping and um so my first thought was to say well don't do that because it's a bad thing. <laughs> and but I, you know, I knew his parents had told him that many times, and it was not really working. So I decided to really spotlight the positive and to find something positive that he was doing, um, because a lot of his identity was wrapped around negative events mm-hmm. and negative feedback that he was getting all the time. And you know, uh, so um, so when he said that to me about the fans, I said, "Wow!" I said, "I'm really impressed that." You're so unhappy in school. You hate school so much. You're really stressed. And there is a, there's a possibility of escaping and running away, and you don't do it. Mm-hmm. You must have so much self-control to stop yourself from doing what you would like to do. And you're staying inside the courtyard, although you'd rather be somewhere else. That's a lot, a lot of great self-control, and that shows a lot of maturity. And he looked at me a little funny, like he was not used to getting that kind of feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in this example, it's, it's um, and with that particular child, that, that whole interaction started, um, it, it really set the tone for a more successful interaction and for a different pattern of inter- interaction that was based around positive elements. So it's still, you know, a fairly new case and it's only been a couple of months, but um, somehow at some point um, I, I knew he had really liked to, um, to come to our sessions and he was struggling with other therapy sessions with other um, providers. So I, I talked to him and I said, you know, I, I think you're doing really well here. And he said, yeah, I'm, I love coming here. I said, well, that's great. I, I can tell. But he said, you know, I, I really wonder what, what's contributing to you doing so well here. And he said, well, because you don't ask me questions. You never ask me any questions, and people ask me way too many questions, and I get so frustrated, and it's so overwhelming, and I just, I just can't take it. And so, you know, for him, it was, it was, um, it was the importance of using uh, the importance of using certain uh, communication technique, using declarative language. Why did not ask him questions because it it created too much pressure for him. Um, now, it may seem counterintuitive because. 
of course, we want, we want to elicit as much information as we can from, from our children, but asking questions actually often backfires. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when we don't ask questions and we use more declarative language, um, we tend to get a lot more information. Um, so that, you know, that um, <clears throat> goes as far as one way to create motivation to participate mm-hmm. in um, interactions. And, and um, you know, I had another um, student that I was thinking of a minute ago that's a completely different situation, but um, <clears throat> a teenager with a lot of motor issues, um, down, boy with Down syndrome, um, he looked at one of the swings that I had in the OT clinic and he said, I want to do this. I'm like, great, there's motivation. Let's go for it. And he had the, that swing was absolutely perfect to work on the postural issues that he had, to work on the um, <clears throat> you know, motor integration issues that he had. Uh, so he tried to get on the swing and it was um, what's called a log swing or a bolster swing. And so he tried to um, get on top of it and he could not and he gave up really quickly. And But his way of coping with the difficulty was to say, I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. And somehow I sensed that he wanted to do something else because he was not feeling competent. <clears throat> so I acknowledged right away. I tried to validate him and I said, you know, I said, this does look really difficult. It's, a, it's really tricky to get on this swing, especially when you've never done it before. Let me see if I can get on this swing to show you how I do it. Um, so I did not tell him that he could not do something else, but I somewhat ignored it and somewhat brought him back to the, the swing. And I demonstrated, I got on the swing, and then he looked at me and said, oh, so, well, I want to I try that. And he tried it, and he was successful. Mm-hmm. So in that case, um, we could, you know, his behavior could have easily been interpreted as um, maybe short attention span, dis- distracted, mm-hmm. distractible, uh, maybe having attention deficit, and he's often been labeled as as having that. Uh, it could have been um, labeled as maybe uh, just not being willing to follow directions when I had told him that that's what we needed to do. So he could have been labeled as defiant or all sorts of things. And, and when really the problem that he had was a motor planning issue, it was a postural issue, and he did not know had to do what he wanted to do. Uh, he had his goal, he had the intention, he had motivation, but he just his body was not was not following, and he just could not figure out how to do it. So once he had the visual um, demonstration, then he could then he could do it. So there are lots of reasons why children may not do what they're asked to do, and it's so 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 critical to really try to find out and uncover what those breakdowns are because mm-hmm. once we know then we can we can remediate and we can help those children be successful. Probably what's you know one of my biggest pet peeves in in um in my line of work is to see children being labeled as being lazy. Mm-hmm. Um because often they're um I I don't really believe that children are lazy. I believe that lazy is a is a byproduct of of another condition and if you know if a child has has difficult times um you know doing things they may choose to do some other things that are easier and that's not being lazy that's just trying to cope and and Mm -hmm. so um so it's really important to to understand um what the breakdowns are absolutely absolutely and i love that um you're really modeling 
for the child. Um, you're really acknowledging, um, using that declarative communication and, and really taking the demand off, um, which is so inviting. Um, and, and you're really going to see a lot more participation with that approach as opposed to uh, trying to force compliance and, um, and flood them with a lot of questions. And um, it's really amazing that that particular client that you saw was able to share and compare uh, his experience with you versus other practitioners um, because that's giving us a lot of information about what he benefits from and it's giving him the opportunity to really share about what's important to him and, and validating what's important to him and acknowledging that. And I think that's such a critical piece of what we do here and what you do in your program is respecting the child and really taking a close look at the child and, and what's important to the child and, and in that moment and then monitoring and adjusting based on the moment. Um, so one of the things you had mentioned was the parent um, hearing and being a part of that um, session. Um, I'd like for you just to touch really briefly on um, the parent participation. It's such a critical piece of our <clears throat> services. Um, I've always found that it was, it was really essential to have the parents not only observe all the sessions, but be part of them. And so in the first phase, I usually have parents just observe and I give them a lot of pointers of what they have to observe, um, <clears throat> looking at the communication techniques I use, looking at how I present information, how the child responds, how it may be different from when the parents interact with their child, and and um, and then gradually I involve the parents more in the sessions where they may be, uh, I may guide them to facilitate an activity so that they can uh, try different interaction patterns. They can try to present inter- the information differently. They can start um, dealing with their child's regulation level and start noticing, oh, yes, my child is getting dysregulated now and I need to back off. I need to slow down a little bit. I need to take a break or I need to uh, present information differently. So uh, parent involvement is critical. Uh, the ch- child's progress is incredibly, incredibly faster when the parents are involved in the, in the process. Okay, great. I agree. And I think that's such an important piece to mention um, that parents can be involved and they should be involved and it really allows them to integrate the uh, recommendations you have into their daily life and, and share with other professionals as well that are working with their child. So um, in, a, in just a few seconds, can you share um, who would benefit from OT? Oh, my goodness. Um, every, every, ch- every child who is having difficulty being successful and, and confident in their life, and after the parents have tried a variety of things, have tried um, you know, the m- most common sense approaches, uh, remediation, and if those things have not tried, have not worked well, uh, then I would, I would look at the possibility of uh, doing an occupational therapy assessment with um, a therapist who understands sensory integration and sensory processing disorders. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It was really wonderful chatting with you today, and I always learn from you every time I hear you speak, and I'm so happy you are here today with us. And- it's been my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back next Tuesday at 11 o'clock. Have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to tune in to Therapeutic Approach to Growth and join Brooke Wagner again every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.